I printed in the bulletin this week this statement of faith that was read in unison every Sunday at the Antioch Community Church where I was raised. I shared this with you last week, and this is a part two of last week, so I'm going to summarize in a little bit. But I wanted to share it with you because it's something that I found as we gathered as a congregation to start our service with this statement of agreement as a child, it was just something that became that foundation that we were raised on and it started the service. And I'm not, I was looking for the articles of faith for Denver Church and have not been able to put my hands on it. So in lieu of that, I was able to, um, a friend of mine who we grew up together in the church and in the choir, she still had one of the old hymnals and was able to copy it and send a picture to me from our old hymn book. So I'm going to read this. If you'd like to read along with me, you're welcome, but I'd like to share this with you this morning. <clears throat> we believe in God, the eternal spirit, father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our father, and to his deeds we testify. He calls the world into being, creates man in his own image, and sets before him the ways of life and death. He seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. He judges men and nations by his righteous will declared through the prophets and apostles. In Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, our crucified and risen Lord, he has come to us and shared our common lot, conquering sin and death and reconciling the world to himself. He bestows upon us his Holy Spirit, creating and renewing the church of Jesus Christ, binding in covenant faithful people of all ages, tongues, and races. He calls us into his church to accept the cost and joy of discipleship, to be his servants in the service of men, to proclaim the gospel to all the world, and resist the powers of evil, to share in Christ's baptism and eat at his table, to join him in his passion and victory. He promises to all who trust him forgiveness of sin and fullness of grace, courage in the struggle for justice and peace, his presence in trial and rejoicing, and eternal life in his kingdom which has no end. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him. Let us pray. Precious Lord, as we have come today to your house, we ask your blessing upon us. Renew us, refresh us, cleanse us, remind us, open our hearts to your word. You have given us a storehouse of treasures, Lord, in our gift and talents, in the love of those around us, our family and friends, our community, the faithfulness of people who care for us. All treasures from you, Lord, and we are so grateful for your generous abundance and gifts. You have said, Seek ye my face. And we say to you, O Lord, thy face we seek. 
be with us now and in every moment that we are aware of your presence in our life, guiding and directing for your glory, Lord, for your glory and honor, that when we see you again, we will hear, well done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we started a two-part series, since I knew I was going to get to do two weeks in a row. So I cooked up a little two-part series on gifts and talents. So since some of you weren't here last week, I'm going to do a quick little recap. So gifts and talents seem very similar, but I understand them to be different, especially spiritually. So gifts are either something that's given at birth or something that is given to us when we come to the Lord. A gift is something specific from God that is to be used in the service of the church. It is not for our own just gratification. It is for the edification of the church. <clears throat> Gifts are effortless. Those are the kinds of things we do where we know we're not going to break a sweat. If somebody says, boy, I need this done, and immediately you know you can step into that job, and it's not going to be stressful. It's going to be an effortless thing for you. That is typically a gift, and particularly when we're working and serving in the church. We went through a whole list of all the different kinds of gifts that are demonstrated and talked about in the New Testament, and particularly in Acts, when the apostles were establishing and growing the new church. It requires a lot, and as most of you know in running a church, whether it's the one doing the administration or the one that makes sure the roof isn't leaking or the one that makes sure the candles are lit or the, the money is counted or distributed or the funds are raised, the windows are cleaned, all of those are required for the church to survive. And every one of us have been given gifts in order to serve the church. We're also told that we are to explore, to discover our gifts. We may not know right off the bat. It may not be something that we're just attuned to. So it requires some thoughtful reading, scripture, prayer, for the Lord to reveal sometimes what our gifts are. Finding out what our gifts, figuring those out is very important. Because when we do not use our God-given gifts, especially in our own unique calling, we may think, oh, someone else can do that. Our gifts are really unique to us. But if we don't do that, not only will we miss out on that experience of personal blessing and spiritual growth, but others miss out on our ministry. And the church suffers without our contribution. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit that distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. So in our talk last week about gifts, I shared some of the experiences I've had in my life where I knew that I, had, I was given a gift of hospitality, which is service, making other people comfortable. And it wasn't something that I really knew in my mind, but as I have been given opportunity to use that gift, 
it's been revealed that that is definitely something that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to cook for people and, and take care of them. That's just what I'm supposed to do. So that's, if you look for me, usually I'm in the kitchen. That's pretty much my lifestyle. Now talents, what we're going to talk about today, talents as they are present in our character are inspired, but they must be developed. They are for our pleasure. So when you think about our senses and our emotions and the way we, the, we experience and understand all of life and the beauty around us, that's a part, it's a gift from God, but it is something that we get to use and develop and have pleasure for ourselves. We also use those talents oftentimes in our work, our life's work, our contribution to our community, blessing our families, and of course, we always love to be able to use our talents in serving the church. Scripture says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I believe that our understanding of talents is linked to that sense of abundance that we get to experience in this life. We are co-creators with God. And we have been given free will. So that's a real tricky balance because we've been given these gifts. It's like we've been given this storehouse of treasure. It's our responsibility to use it, to, to develop it, to get better at it. But we don't have to. We can just leave it there. We are the body of Christ called to his service with the purpose of serving him through our gifts and talents, revealing his love through our Savior Jesus Christ to his glory and the reconciliation of all men to God. We do not do this on our own. 2 Corinthians he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So today, as we talk about talents, I'm going to start. The standard dictionary defines talent as a, a special, often athletic, creative, or artistic aptitude. General intelligence or mental power, ability, the natural endowments of a person. So there is natural ability or aptitude, but without our engagement to develop those abilities, they aren't going to grow. They're just going to sit there. Most of you are probably familiar with the story Jesus tells, the parable of the talents. I'd like to share that with you. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So doubled his investment. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent <clears throat> dug a hole in the ground, 
and buried his talent. Now after a long time, the master returns. And he came and asked his servants to settle his accounts. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here, and I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more, to everyone who has more will be given. Let me say that again. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty harsh. Well, first of all, I thought it was very interesting in doing some research on talents. In Jesus' time, a talent was used as a unit of weight measurement equivalent to about 80 pounds. But when used as currency, one talent is about 6,000 denarii, a standard Roman coin, which is the usual payment for a day's labor. So during those times, one talent is equivalent to 16 years worth of labor. That's a huge investment. Right? If you gave somebody five times 16 years worth of what they would earn in labor, that's a big responsibility. That's a, that, that's a lot. And I think about God being that way, and when he gives, he gives so abundantly that is God's nature, is to give in abundance, right? You don't just see one flower or one bird, right? It is so abundant around us. And so I found that very interesting, that as we think about the story and the master doling out these talents, it wasn't just, here's a quarter. 
It was a very substantial amount that he was entrusting to his servants. Now, that's a very different, different definition than how we use the word talent, a skill or natural ability, but I think as we interchange those, both are relevant to our message today. So I want to look at the servants. What are the difference in these servants and why, who were they? What was going on for them? So it seemed like the first servant, the guy who got five, he was probably very skilled, right? He had experience. He was savvy. He was smart. He was likely one of the more successful ones in his circle. He had learned to connect his skills with his gifts and talents. And my understanding of him being learned is that he knew what he was doing. He probably had some experience with finance and earning interest and how to invest money. He'd probably already been successful, so he had a little more confidence in what he was doing. He had a clear understanding that when his master returned, what he had done with those talents would be a direct measuring stick to his usefulness. So he understood all that was going on. He would be accountable. His master would expect something in return. But he was knowledgeable about that from the beginning. I'm also assuming he was willing to take some risks and he was willing to be challenged in order to do the best job. The second steward seems to have some basic understanding. He knows a little bit about how to multiply his talent. Maybe he was an average guy. You know, he'd had some experience. He knew that there was something more to it than just digging a hole. But I think he got distracted. He knew enough to do something, but everything else got in the way. Without a clear vision of the specific gain, there is little incentive to invest our efforts. Or we're just busy. It's on the list of things to do, but we just don't do it. We don't get around to practicing and developing that skill or talent. This guy, he probably figured something was better than nothing. Or maybe it was the very best that he could do because he was praised along with the first steward. He was not shamed. There was no penalty for what he had done. He was praised and rewarded at the exact same level as the first. So for me, that story is there's no shame in being average, thank goodness. As long as we invest what we do have, we must use what we do have. Second Corinthians says each man must do as he has decided in his heart to do. Not reluctantly or under compulsion for 
God loves a cheerful giver. So now we have the third steward. That was not a good scene for him. I mean, they called him names. He was sent into the outer darkness. I was pretty harsh. He was consumed by fear. He had no direction or understanding of what he was to do with his talent. He was not learned. He didn't know. No one told him the word. No one gave him the instruction. All he knew was he was afraid. And the only thing he could do was bury that in the ground. Have we ever found ourselves in that situation where we're called to something and it's not quite comfortable and fear is such a big guy? No, fear is just... I, reminds me of the Ghostbusters where that great big giant thing comes out and it's so mean and scary and fear can look like that. We are given opportunity, but because we consider all the things that might go wrong or how we might be embarrassed or suffer loss, we avoid the challenge to grow. Sometimes we just get comfortable with how things are. But the point here in the story is that ultimately it gets uncomfortable. He may have been very comfortable in his fear and very comfortable with the whole, but ultimately it gets very uncomfortable. He is ridiculed, he's called names, and he's thrown into the outer darkness. Some of you may hear popular psychologists talk about get out of your comfort zone, right? Have you ever heard that? Somebody says, get out of your comfort zone. In order to make a change, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Well, for all the years that I've been doing teaching and training, I say the opposite. I say we need to get into our comfort zone because when we are out of our comfort zone, we are uncomfortable. And if we do the same things over and over and over, and we continue to be uncomfortable, we're not getting the results we want. God has not designed us to get uncomfortable. We are designed to thrive and grow, to find joy in our service, to find joy in the work and development of our gifts and talents. For me, Jesus is telling us that God is our master. He has given us talents and a task. We use and develop our talents as we serve him through the church, our family, community, and the world. If we are willing to put in the time to develop our talents, connecting them to our gifts and passions, they will multiply we'll get better, there will be fruitfulness to our efforts, and more importantly, we will receive his reward. That is the ultimate comfort zone. Thriving, growing, living with his praise and peace. So personal story, piano's kind of like that for me. It's clearly not a gift. It's more in the talent side of things. 
And I was raised taking piano lessons. My piano teacher was the organist at church. I was exposed to a lot of musicians around me. And because it's a talent and not a gift, I really have to practice. If I don't practice, you know it on Sunday morning. And even then, I can practice real hard and yesterday have it perfect and then the next day not be able to find the keys. So it's an ongoing work of development. But for many years, I wouldn't touch a piano. I have a baby grand, a beautiful baby grand piano, and I wouldn't touch it because I was so embarrassed that I couldn't play piano well enough that I decided not to play at all. So it sat untouched in my living room. And even my kids were aware of the fact that, you know, if I was practicing, playing around, and they came in the door, I'd stop. Because I was even too embarrassed to play in front of my children because I knew I wasn't good enough. So, several years later, Lowell comes into my life. Lowell says, how would you like to play piano at our little church? I said, oh, I'm not good enough. He said, sure you are. And he let me play. So, I, I know you've suffered through it, but I've gotten a little better, and I do practice, and I am grateful. Because a few years ago, I was visiting my son in Florida, and his fiance's family always has a big Christmas Eve bash, like 100 people. And they have a big, beautiful home, and they also have a big, beautiful piano. And when I got there, they said, we'd like you to play piano for our party. And we've already printed up all these booklets for everybody for a sing-along. Now, my son knew that except for this little place right here, I wouldn't play for anybody. So he's looking at me like, well, what you going to do? What you going to do? I said, sure. Because I knew that was that moment of truth. That was that moment of truth. Or if I said no, that I was shutting down any possibility of getting God's blessing on this talent that I have. And if you could imagine, in the day of the event, I was very nervous. I don't know that I've really been more nervous in my life. But during the week, I had, and of course I had none of my books, and I can't play except by reading the music. Um, they used to make fun of me that if the music fell off the piano, I couldn't even come up with an amen, which is true. So we had to get an iPad. And my son found all the hymns. We actually found the link to the our hymnal so that I'd know, and some of the others. So we got all these songs queued up on the iPad. I practiced during the week. The night of the party, the house was filled with all these people I'd never met. All they knew was my son. And here I was sitting at this piano with the house full of people. And I did it. And my son held the iPad and he scrolled up so I could see the music. And I'll tell you, the best part of it was seeing his face. Because he saw me overcome this fear, this belief that I was not good enough. 
and it was one of my greatest joys. It was a bucket list moment. I was, I praised God every minute that he gave me that chance, that he gave me this chance to be able to do something that I had carried this belief that I was not good enough. But it was a talent God wants me to be comfortable enough with. And it's not, I'll never be on, you know, Carnegie Hall. That's not going to be in my, my future. But I get to be here and worship God and play with you. And you tolerate me and I'm grateful. And I got to play and my son got to see me develop that gift, that talent, and show others. I called Scott when the party was over and I was just bawling my eyes out, out in the parking lot, just crying. I did it, I did it, I did it. And though that may seem like a silly thing, I believe that's how God works. God is so personal. He will touch us and reach us in those places that sometimes we don't even know we have. He is so kind. From the time of creation of mankind, each individual has been entrusted with resources of time and material wealth. Everything we have comes from God and belongs to Him. We are responsible for using those resources so that they increase in value. As Christians, we have additionally the most valuable resource of all, which is the Word of God. If we believe and understand Him and apply His Word as good stewards, we are a blessing to others. And the value of what we do multiplies. We are accountable to the Lord for the use of His resources. He has given each person a wide variety of gifts and he expects us to employ those gifts in his service. It is not acceptable merely to put those gifts in a closet shelf and ignore them. Like the three servants, we do not have gifts of the same degree. And God knows this. The return God expects of us is commiserate with the gifts we have been given. The servant who received the one talent was not condemned for failing to reach the five-talent goal. He was condemned because he did nothing with what he was given. The gifts we receive from God include skills, abilities, family connections, social positions, education, experiences, and more. The point of the parable is that we are to use whatever we have been given. For God's purpose. The consequences of the unproductive servant far beyond anything triggered by mere business mediocrity tell us that we too are to invest our lives and not waste them. God does not endow people with identical or necessarily equal gifts. If you do as well as you can with the gifts you have been given, you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Amen.